Science. Science Po. Hello everyone and welcome to the new episode of Science Po Research Podcast, the podcast where I talk to Science Po researchers about their academic work, which helps us understand and address and sometimes solve the most important problems of our times. In the second season, we are talking about challenges to modern democracies coming from within, but also from outside. We talk about populism, we talk about polarization, we talk about the rise of authoritarian regimes. And today, I'm very happy to have here with me Wiener Sino, who is a professor of political science at Sciences Po. He works at the Sevipov Center for Political Research. He was recently elected as a director of uh, Sevipov. He joined uh, Sciences Po uh, in 2021 as a professor of political uh, science after being a professor in the Department of Political Science at Temple University. Wien works on uh, uh, political attitudes, beliefs, political behavior, political psychology. And we start with your uh, last book, which is no longer a new book, uh, called Taming Intuition, uh, which uh, looks at how intuition affects uh, political behavior, voter behavior, and uh, what role it plays. When we teach political science, we usually talk about rational uh, voter models. We model decisions based on rational reasoning. The book is exactly different. The book talks about other ways to understand voters' uh, behavior. And why wouldn't I ask you about the main argument of the book? Sergey, it's very nice to be here to, to share um, uh, my research with you and, and the listeners. So, um, so the main argument uh, of this book is to actually uh, take on um, a debate that exists within political science. And at this point, I'd like to, to tell what political science is. So political science is the study of the modern nation state. So we study governments and how they affect people's lives and how people behave within them. And the thing about the modern nation state is it requires a large government, um, complicated government in order to organize collective, large collective life. And governments vary in terms of uh, nowadays um, and for the past couple hundred years in terms of how democratic or non-democratic those countries are. And within democratic countries, there's a notion that people should be able to self-govern. We should be able to govern ourselves. And there is a, a central debate within political science, within the study of democracies, about whether or not people are up to that task. Okay? On the one side, so being a date, debate, there are two sides, essentially, uh, to be a little bit simplistic. But on one side, we have the optimist. Uh, and those people, uh, those scholars, often work from this rational choice uh, uh, tradition that you uh, discussed, which is that people make decisions in a largely rational way, that they connect their behavior, their attitudes, uh, their preferences, their beliefs, and their, and their voting behavior to their values, uh, to their understanding of how things are going and who is to, which politicians are to credit or to blame for, say, the way the economy is going. And if that's the case, democracy works just fine. People are able to self-govern. On the other side of that debate are the pessimists. And the pessimists say that people aren't up to the task. They have all sorts of biases, all sorts of things that get in the way of them being rational. And in fact, many people are downright irrational. The argument of our book 
is that the problem with both of these models is that they paint people as uniform, that, that we all work and behave and make decisions in the same way. The fact is what we've learned from work in psychology and especially neuropsychology is that that's not the case. People vary in how they reason. And as a result, some people are more likely to behave in ways that uh, rational choice models would, would deem rational. And some people work more in a way that, uh, that uh, one might deem irrational or unreasonable. As a result, the pessimist and the optimist you know, on one reading could be both right, right? There are times, there are conditions under which we should be pessimistic, conditions under which we should be optimistic. But at the end of the day, we have to take into account how people actually make decisions. Thanks. Uh, as an economist, I can draw a parallel with behavioral economics and behavioral finance. Uh, recently, we've had a series of Nobel Prizes uh, given to people who study non-rational players in economic and financial uh, markets. In finance, the main question is, uh, how stock prices or other asset prices are formed. And indeed, we have some rational investors and some irrational investors. Sometimes we call them noise traders, people who may make decisions uh, based on emotion. And the main question is, who is the marginal investor? Right. Who's the guy or girl that determines the price of the asset in this particular moment? Is that a noise trader or is that a, a very rational, long-term, non-myopic thinker which is paid for uh, making uh, smart decisions that reflect all future circumstances? And this is uh, why I would like to ask you a question. Okay, people are heterogeneous and we fully agree with that. This is what political science is. Politics is about bringing together different people and finding out a way to compromise on, on governance, uh, given their attitudes and preferences. We'll talk about attitudes and preferences in detail. But the question is, you have irrational, intuitive voters, you have rational, uh, pragmatic voters. Who's actually the pivotal voter? Who's actually the voter whose vote decides who gets into presidential office? Well, see, that depends on on the distribution of these types, right? So I could, you could imagine in, in financial markets that if you're overwhelmed by these sort of noise traders, right, then what happens, right? How do they make their decisions? Under, under these sorts of models, you could have sort of a uh, sort of a black and white noise model where I could imagine these irrational traders, if they're just randomly picking their decisions, they cancel out. The marginal trader is going to be the sort of rational one, right? And so there's also this idea that exists in, in uh, models of, say, voting behavior. So let's talk about voting behavior because I think that's the, the clearest example. So on the one hand, you might have um, concerns that people who vote irrationally, they vote irrationally because they um, are uninformed about politics or they have weird, odd beliefs about politics and they vote in ways that are not consistent with a, with a rational choice model. We could get into the details of that, but let's just put, let's just put that there. So as long as that behavior is random, it cancels out. And what you observe as the marginal voter would be somebody who is behaving in a, in a manner that is rational. The, 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 the problem here, or I would say that the challenge to that, that model empirically is that what we know from the evidence is that actually the sorts of voters that are well-informed, should, should they know a lot about politics, um, they are smart, they're intelligent people, they have biases. 
And those biases often lead them to behave in ways that uh, are not consistent with the rational choice model. Let me take an example uh, that, that comes from uh, American politics, where the book, uh, most of the evidence came from the book. But this point, I think, would apply beyond the, the U.S. case. In the United States, there are two parties, two political parties that organize uh, elections. As a result, people largely have, especially in presidential elections, since you meant presidential elections, people have choices between a Democrat or Republican. Now, all goes well if people choose, cast a vote for that candidate based on uh, a uh, rational maximization of their utility model, okay? On the other hand, Biased voters vote in a way that they prefer one party under every single circumstance. That means that this person is now giving to a political party or a political candidate the power to tell them, A, what's true about the world, is the economy doing well or, or not, and two, and, and most uh, problematic from the standpoint of democratic theory, it gives um, a candidate or a political party, the power to tell uh, individuals, these biased individuals, what it is that they should believe, okay? So what, what policy positions that they should have. Now, if that's the case, that completely turns on, on its head what, what democracy uh, should be. So imagine in the example that you gave me, imagine if um, investors, imagine if their behavior were at the the mercy of what uh, a particular person say elon musk wanted them to do and they just woke up in the morning and said whatever elon musk says i should do i'll do without taking into account the full picture if that were the case then that marginal investor in this case that marginal voter will behave in ways that are not always consistent with their interests yeah this is this is true and in financial markets we have certain um institutions uh, that help you to disclose information, help you to verify information. We have auditors. Sometimes those auditors fail and we have uh, big scandals like Enron scandal or a subprime mortgage uh, uh, crisis where indeed certain financial institutions, certain um, doorkeepers actually failed. In politics, we also have checks and balances. We also have ways to verify the promises, uh, uh, to monitor the politician's performance. And yet the main question is, if you're a voter who has to exercise the voting right once every few years in the voting booth, do you actually have time and desire to invest your time in understanding those uh, uh, those issues. When you're an investor, your money is at stake, so you have an interest actually to think about uh, think about those issues, to study the re company reports. Uh, sometimes these reports are also misleading, and then you have audited reports, and sometimes auditors are corrupt. But um, in politics, you're just a voter. You already spend half an hour of your time to show up at the polling booth and vote. But do you have hours actually look into issues that you mentioned to see beyond the misleading information or sometimes untruthful information. Uh, to what extent people are prepared to do that, given that the probability that their individual vote is not actually pivotal? To what extent they are prepared to invest their time and effort in understanding those issues? So this is actually a, a great uh, 
uh, starting point because w- what you talk about is actually there's a long uh, and deep literature about this in political science. So the parallel to to the financial world that you bring up about sort of third party information providers is the role of the news media. That's what the news media is supposed to do. The thing about it is that um, people need to let's let's say that's works perfectly. Okay. People need to invest time and have the motivation to invest time into paying attention to what is happening in politics. And what we know empirically is that's not the case. Uh, there's a, a, you know, uh, to, to quote, to quote John Zoller, when it comes to the level of political knowledge, there is a low mean and a high variance. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of people, but there are some people that are very, very, uh, informed about politics, but most people aren't, uh, now, as a result, uh, then the sort of rational, just bringing the sort of optimistic rational choice models back into the picture, they say exactly what you say. Well, the probability that I, as an individual, am going to decide the outcome of, of, of even a small election, but much less a presidential election where millions of people vote, is infinitesimal, right? So what incentive do I have to be informed, right? The, uh, as a result, you know, the way this is solved is, well, people might have these expressive needs, uh, duties, feelings that they, you know, they should, uh, as citizens of democracy, know enough about politics to do something. And, and that I think is true, but it still, still leaves the question on the table that, well, I still don't have a whole lot of incentive to, to read uh, or consume news on a daily basis. Uh, at the level that might needed to be that informed about politics. For this, the the optimist uh, camp says, that's fine. You know, we have heuristics. Heuristics are informational shortcuts that allow people to make decisions without a whole lot of information, right? So you see this, uh, you know, there are plenty of examples from, from economics about this uh, that I can use... Uh, you know, aspects of them, if I'm buying a, a computer or something like that, I can use uh, aspects of that uh, computer that can tell me whether or not it's a quality product, okay? And as long as these the, the inputs into these heuristics are good, I can make good decisions without knowing anything about how a computer runs, right? So, uh, so that's great. So heuristics can be good. It can help us make decisions. The pessimist... Uh, point out that there are plenty of instances, uh, and this is where behavioral economics gets a lot of its um, uh, its foundational uh, beginnings. There are lots of instances where heuristics fall apart, that they, in fact, lead people astray. They cause people to make decisions that are not what they should. So again, staying in the realm of economics, people tend to use a heuristic that they want to avoid losses uh, rather than uh, than achieve gains. Um, this can, is uh, Kahneman-Tversky kind of, theory. Yes, Kahneman-Tversky's prospect theory. So mm-hmm. the idea here is that when people are loss-averse, they sometimes can make decisions that um, look odd from the standpoint of, of a rational choice model. So they can take risk when they shouldn't, uh, they, or they can be risk-averse when they shouldn't. The same thing happens in, in, in the political realm. So the main heuristic that, that, have, that has been proposed that people in the optimistic optimistic camp say, okay, yeah, people don't have time. 
Uh, most people don't have time and the motivation to be all that informed about politics, but that's okay because this is a this is a common problem everywhere. Um, I don't have time to learn how to uh, you know fix my uh, car, right? Um, but I can pay somebody who does and, and invest in that a mechanic, right? At the same time, in the context of politics, we can also delegate that responsibility to somebody who does put that time in. Those people in modern politics are called politicians and they're part of political parties. Those political parties, as long as they have a stable uh, worldview and, and behave in, in ways that are uh, predictable and linked to my values, I can just look for the political party that is most consistent with my preferences and vote for that party until they do something that causes me to say, oh, you're no longer the party that I thought it was. I need to find uh, a different heuristic or I need to vote in a different way. So all well and good if that works well. The pessimists come in the room and say, well, but here's the problem of bias. The problem is that uh, from the rational choice model of me just voting for a political party that's consistent with my values, at the very least, what I am doing is monitoring whether or not that political party is doing what I would want it to do. In the same way that I need to monitor that mechanic to make sure that they're actually fixing my car and not just taking my money, right? Um, now, with a fixing a car, I have an incentive to do that. I want a car that works and I can judge whether or not my car works. So that's an that's a easy problem to fix. In politics, what the pessimistic camp points out is that many people come to see that political party that they vote for as an extension of their social identity. And when it becomes an extension of their social identity, they come to see political parties in the same way that people come to see sports teams. They root for that political party because they are a member of that political party. In the same way that you might be a fan of uh, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and you want them to win or lose no matter what, no matter who the players are on their team, no matter anything, in politics, that same, uh, that same dynamic will lead people to continue to vote for a political party, even when it starts to do things that are not consistent with their values or that are not consistent with their material interest. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great, a great parallel to the sports teams. There is actually research showing that when you vote for political parties in your formative years, that's when your, um, your uh, personality gets formed and shaped. If for some reason, for some random reason, you didn't vote uh, when you were a student, so you missed this election, you'll have a different identity than from a people who, for example, in that particular year voted for one party. Next election, you're more likely to vote for the same party, no matter what. So there is actually indeed uh, this impact that uh, your past voting, your past sports teams uh, uh, experience affects who you vote for, no matter what the party is doing four years later. And indeed, uh, that is that is something which is not very easy to describe in rational choice uh, uh, paradigm. So you mentioned words like uh, affect uh, in your book. Uh, you mentioned today, you mentioned words like uh, preferences. In rational choice paradigm, attitudes, preferences are pretty much the same thing. Um, 
in rational choice uh, paradigm, emotions affect are not uh, uh, are not uh, studied. Uh, to what extent that determines where we are now? So when you think about your book came out in 2017, the first year of uh, presidential term of Donald Trump, uh, a lot of people talk about polarization in recent years in the United States. What's uh, what's the impact of uh, intuition of voters affect emotions in uh, growing polarization and effective polarization in particular well it seems to be it seems to be growing and uh and and from the point of our book is also varies across individuals the degree to which they're uh effective that's to say emotional reactions about politics um have uh, a major major you know shape in major ways uh what it is that they believe and how they behave. So if I could take a moment to define some of the things that you mentioned here, intuition, affect, preferences, attitudes. Very quickly, the, the sort of rational choice models, and, and I should say, I should actually be fair here, the, the, the models of how people make this political decisions on both the optimistic and the, the pessimistic side of the debate thinks, uh, or I should say the canonical or the, you know, the foundational models really uh, paint people as thinking boxes that people think. And the argument was essentially, how well are they doing that thinking, right? With rational choice models saying they do it well and pessimistic models saying they're not really doing it at all. Now, in that context though, uh, let's bring in the actual sort of neuroscientist in the room and say, well, how is it that the human mind actually works? And what they will say is that actually, the way the human mind works is a lot of what uh, the way in which we operate and the way in which we make uh, we make decisions happens outside of cognitive awareness. In other words, you're not thinking uh, about it at all. You can the analogy here is: Have you ever, you know, been on your on your way to work or you're on your way home from work? So it's a familiar route for you. You could be driving, you could be walking, or whatever, and you're just lost in thought. And before you know it, you've arrived home. And you can't, you know the turns and all that sort of things you've, you've taken because uh, they're so familiar and it's, it's what you do every day. But while you were walking home or driving home, you weren't cognitively, consciously saying, turn left, turn right. That's intuition. And intuition is something that we usually don't have access to because it happens outside of conscious awareness, but we have experiences many times of doing things automatically without thought. So those intuitions are largely a function of either uh, familiar behaviors that we've trained ourselves to do or effective emotional reactions to the things that are presented for us, okay? Now that intuitive way of behaving and making decisions uh, actually can work very well. It doesn't, uh, in fact, that's the reason why our brains work that way is because it does help us be, uh, behave and make decisions uh, most of the time in our life. The problem is that politics is a very new invention and it asks people to think constantly. Think, 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 think. And so that is something that's hard for us to do. So Kahneman Tversky, who you mentioned in, their, in, in his book, uh, um, uh, Kahneman writes a book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, in which he says, intuition is the thinking fast. And that is what we largely do. And the thinking slow part is something that 
is only recruited when we need help. When our intuitive system says, I'm not sure if this is the right uh, choice. Now, if all goes well, we could be very rational. We could think through things and say, okay, uh, is it A, B, C, or D? Uh, if not, though, uh, that takes effort. Kahneman says, well, the thinking part is a lazy controller of intuition and often just takes what intuition gives it and says, that's fine. Let's go ahead and do that. So let's then bring this back to the to your, your question about um, the role that intuition plays in shaping how people respond to politics in a polarized context. The thing about polarization is that uh, polarization is about there being uh, two or more groups in politics who are diametrically opposed. The simplistic is two. And the American case really gives us that. You have Democrats and you have Republicans on, on either side. Because politics is about a conflict and largely something that's perceived as a zero-sum conflict, so if you win, I lose, right? That creates not just disagreement, but um, animus. So people dislike, not just disagree with, but dislike people on the other side of that divide. That dislike, as it becomes strong, as polarization becomes stronger, that dislike becomes more intense. And then people's intuitive um, reactions about politics are informed by that deep dislike. So even if the other side says something reasonable, my intuition will be to say, that's dumb. Or even if my side does something horrible, say something corrupt, then my intuition will be to say, oh, that's okay. But democratic politics requires that our thinking part of the brain comes in, in those moments to say, stop, you need to reassess and come to a different decision. That process is called reflection. The ability to second guess ourselves, to overturn our intuition is difficult. It requires cognition and not everybody wants to do it. Thanks for mentioning reflection. Uh, your book is called Taming Intuition and indeed reflection is the main tool to tame intuition. So it's an optimistic thesis, uh, even though people don't want to do it. And indeed, it's energy consuming, calorie consuming to switch on the slow thinking process because this is where calories are consumed while intuition-based decision-making is quick and easy. And so most people would like to do that. But as you rightly said, intuition, fast thinking system is based on the past experiences. Politics is a new invention. Another new invention is, of course, social media, which trans has transformed politics. And uh, here, uh, the bridge between what you are doing today and your book from 2017 is indeed this, uh, this class of political manipulators who use social media to trigger emotions, to change the way intuitive thinking uh, reacts to political statement. I would mention book. I think she book is not translated. It's called Engineers of Chaos by Juliana de Ampoli, somebody who teaches at Sciences Po, who's very famous in in this uh, place uh, with his uh, uh, recent book, uh, The Wizard of the Kremlin, which has been recently translated into English. Uh, so there, this book about Engineers of Chaos is actually a book about those conscious manipulators. Probably Donald Trump is just a talented manipulator without much of slow thinking about how to manipulate emotions. But there are people around him, there are people around other Western politicians who consciously study data, 
and look how to manipulate voters' intuitions and emotions. And of course, social media is an essential tool for doing that. And uh, you're now, not now, for a few years now, you work on, on those issues, but also you also work on French politics and French elections as well. You work on deactivation experiments. Why uh, don't you tell us about this recent research? I'd uh, be happy to, in fact, because it, it, it aligns with the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, the interesting thing about social media is that it uh, it actually gives people, you know, we were just talking before about how people don't have a whole lot of motivation to inform themselves about politics because it takes effort. Social media, actually, one of the nice things about social media for all of its critiques that it gets, and I will get into the critiques, it actually does help people stay informed about politics. And this is something that we learned from uh, the deactivation study that we did in, uh, in the previous uh, presidential election in France in 2022, where we incentivized, which is a nice way of saying paid people, to uh, deactivate their Facebook page during the campaign. So around three, a little over three weeks. We had a randomly constructed control group that continued to use their Facebook as they normally do. And at the end of the election, we, we, we found some interesting things uh, that um, actually comport with some of the other studies that have been done along these lines in different, in different places. So the first thing I'll tell you that's a little bit surprising from this, the, the standpoint of thinking about social media as, as a vector of misinformation is that at least with respect to Facebook, uh, the people who gave up Facebook for that three week period actually knew less about politics. And we gave them a, a test, a true false test. And the interesting thing that we did was we, the, the false uh, news items, we wrote in ways that would, that looked like uh, misinformation, that they were plausible, but wrong. Now, what, what we sort of found uh, after this is actually the folks who gave up uh, Facebook, they weren't more likely to say that they believed the fake stuff. They were just not as good at recognizing the true stuff was true because they didn't know it. Because it, it And you incentivized people to give correct answers, right? So did you pay for correct answers? No, we didn't. We didn't do that. Okay. And it would have been interesting if we had done that. So, so no, this is, it, you know, the only thing we incentivized was them to deactivate their Facebook page. Now, linking back to this, this notion of reflection, though, um, we also measured uh, how, I, I didn't mention this in the, in, in the discussion of the book, but one of the main things we do in this book is we have a way, uh, we develop a way of measuring the degree to which people are motivated to second guess themselves and be reflective. What we found in the Facebook deactivation study was that people who were motivated to be reflective if they gave up Facebook, those were the people that tended to find other news, uh, news from other places, okay? They seemed to be motivated. There was an election about to happen. They seemed to be motivated to try to learn what was going on in politics to make a decision. Whereas those who were not motivated, they behaved like uh, Danny Kahneman's lazy controllers. They didn't really pay as much attention to politics. They weren't look on Facebook to get that information. Therefore, they knew less about politics. So when it comes to Facebook, I think one of the conclusions that we draw from this is that Facebook, either Facebook isn't quite the vector of, 
of um, misinformation that we worry that it is, or Facebook does a good job with its algorithm to, to basically kind of move that stuff out. Of course, that's only about Facebook. So if you posed me the same question about Twitter, which I think is now called X or TikTok, who knows? So social media platforms vary, can vary the degree to which they become uh, vectors of misinformation and vectors of chaos. Last point here is, uh, that I'll make is some other work that I, I, I've done in this, in this area is about the degree to which some people actually seek to sow chaos on social media as a way to, to, to basically feel good about themselves, to feel powerful. And uh, those individuals actually uh, seem to be the main, the main uh, vector of, of channeling that chaos, which I think is, there's a, I'm gonna put an optimistic twin, uh, spin on that. Most people don't spread fake news uh, they seem to uh, seem to be based on reputational concerns. That is to suggest that even if people aren't being all that reflective about the information they receive, they at least maybe can notice when something's a bit weird and maybe it affects their beliefs, but they don't share it. The people who share it seem to have an intention to share it. They know that they're sharing fake news and they want to because they like creating chaos. Since you asked about Twitter, I should promote my own work on Twitter, uh, together with uh, Theo Marquis, Ekaterina Zhuravsky, and Emiric Henry. We did do this study that you mentioned, uh, where we actually showed people false news and true news and tried to see what they share. And we tried various interventions, including reflection, including reflection, where we told people, you know that there is a lot of false news circulating on false media. And people who get this randomized treatment this randomized group of people uh, that got the treatment of reflection actually did share false news less and true news more. So it's exactly in line with you, your great. argument. Yeah, it's exactly in line with your argument and maybe it works on Twitter. But actually my, my past research experience shows that um, things we find on Facebook work in a similar way on Twitter. Uh, we also have a paper where we did an experiment with Marine Le Pen false uh, statements on Facebook in France. And then we later saw that Twitter is using same interventions against Donald Trump in the United States. So I think Twitter has run a similar experiment and learned the same thing. But overall, I would like to come back to um, deactivation experiments because, because it's very important. So one of the Scholars of uh, social media in economics, Matt Gensko, one of the prominent uh, media scholars, uh, uh, Clark Medal winner. Clark Medal is the uh, award for the best uh, young uh, U.S. economist and a good predictor of a future Nobel Prize. Matt Gensko has shown that Facebook is addictive. He's not the first and the last person to show this, but he showed it in a very sophisticated uh, and uh, convincing way. And he's also written a paper on a de deactivation experiment, probably the first paper with a deactivation uh, experiment, where he shows exactly what you said. Um, uh, Facebook is an, a tool for getting political information, and it works. But he's also shown that people who are off Facebook are less polarized mm -hmm. and more happy. And uh, since you are a deactivation scholar yourself, I would just ask you for a general statement of uh, all the deactivation experiments we've done recently, 
uh, we, what do we learn? So the result on political information stays. Are the other results on happiness and polarization reproduced or confirmed or less uh, uh, less stable? Where are we on the activation literature? But the the, the thing that and I should state state for the for the listeners, these are are very expensive studies to run because you're paying people to 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 give up uh, to deactivate their Facebook, which uh, for you know a period of time, and so people of course want to be paid good money for that. Um, so they're not a whole bunch of these studies, but the the few that exist, including including ours, suggest that or, or point to the same findings with respect to information. So Facebook informs across context, so not just in the United States, not just in France. The other thing, though, that it suggests, uh, consistent with Matt Ginskow's work, is that probably because Facebook uh, is addictive, is that when people stop using it, they report feeling happier uh, about their, the life that they lead. I, the, the effect of that is relatively small, so it's not that people are you know, becoming extremely overjoyed or anything, but they feel a bit happier than they did before, and they can, they can notice it, they, they tell you it. And in the study that, that we did, we tried to dig into this, try to understand why, and what people said was that uh, the reason why they felt happier was because they did not miss the interactions that they experienced and observed on Facebook. So that would suggest that the, the sort of doom scrolling aspect that, that Facebook and the algorithm that Facebook has creates, people don't like that experience. They don't like that experience if they can't put down their phone, right? Now, with respect to polarization, though, that's where we're all over the map. So uh, Matt Ginskow uh, and, his, and his team did the deactivation Facebook experiment in the United States some years back during the 2018 uh, elections, I believe. And they find that people who gave up Facebook were a bit less polarized in terms of party politics. Another team uh, led by um, Josh Tucker, uh, based at NYU, in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina found the opposite. They found that people who gave up Facebook for a week were actually more polarized, but not in terms of partisanship, but in terms of ethnic uh, rivalry, given that that's the context of Bosnia. In France, we find essentially no effect at all in terms of, uh, we tried to measure party polarization, ideological polarization, as well as what we call social polarization. So polarization based on ethnic identities. And we essentially find that the folks who gave up Facebook were no different uh, on average from those who didn't. Now, when we look closer at that result, um, and, and, and these are things that we said that we would do before we conducted the study, so we weren't just fishing for results here, we find an interesting, um, it's interesting that we find that education is uh, differentiates whether or not giving up Facebook is decreases or increases polarization. And what we found was a bit surprising to us, um, but nonetheless, it's what we found. So on the one hand, those who give up Facebook for um, that month, who, who have a college education, they actually end up being less polarized with respect to political parties. Okay, so they, 
They're less likely to say they really hate the other political party, which is interesting from the context as this happened during a, a presidential campaign, right? So this is where partisan polarization is usually the highest. That didn't surprise us. That's in fact what we hypothesized because there is this notion that that college educated, or they, there's evidence that college educated people are more likely to create bubbles on their social networks and therefore be in this sort of echo chamber where they just see the same information over and over again. And so this suggests that college-educated people who gave up Facebook for a month were a bit more likely to maybe encounter information that was a bit different uh, and maybe have less polarized opinions about the other political party. On the other hand, we found that people who do not have a college education who gave up uh, Facebook for that month, they actually were more polarized about politics than their uh, counterparts in the control group. That we have no explanation for. We didn't expect that to happen. So that would require uh, more study to understand why that's the case. But it does indicate that when it comes to polarization, the effects of Facebook, I believe, are much more contingent, um, much more a function of the context in which people are living and things are, um, are happening. It's much more of a social construction than these other elements being informed and uh, the degree to which people are happy. Did you, did you have uh, data on uh, media consumption? I guess you did have data on rural versus urban uh, social community, uh, the context that you mentioned. Right. Does that play a role? People who, who don't have college degree, which media do they consume when they're uh, off Facebook? Uh, which people they talk to? Which bars they go to? There are now studies indeed yeah. about the activation experiments. People look at time use and then yeah. look at how much time you start spending in bars with friends. And, and that makes people happy, as you can imagine. Yeah. But uh, in, your, in your study, uh, what, uh, what, what did you find in terms of media consumption? We, we actually found that the, you know, the uh, degree to which how much people used Facebook before the study began or the type of media they consumed didn't really, oddly enough, uh, didn't really seem to affect the, the, you know, uh, the degree to which the Facebook deactivation, uh, you know, how it worked or how it affected their opinion. So it's not the case that people who consumed media a lot uh, had a different set of outcomes at the end of the study than those who didn't. So that is for that is what it is. So in in some sense, it's it's puzzling this this finding that we have with respect to to college education. Uh, we did try to understand what people chose to do when they didn't have Facebook, and one of the things that we uh, found a little bit contrary to our expectations, was that people did not fill this in, largely did not fill this in with other types of social media. So it's not the case that these people you know, went and said, well, now I guess I'll uh, go to Instagram or TikTok. Instead, what people tended to do, and there were sort of two groups, some people who were more likely to just start watching more television, and some people who were more likely to hang out with their friends, potentially at bars. Uh, and... Uh, I, I don't have on the top of my head whether or not that uh, different, you know, whether or not urban people are more likely to watch TV and or more likely to hang out with friends and rural people are more likely to watch TV. I can't say that, but that would be a place to look, I think. Thank you. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much all we have for now. Uh, thank you very much, Vin, for this exciting uh, conversation. Once again, in order to tame intuition, use reflection. I think this is the main takeaway from uh, from this conversation. I forgot to mention that there is actually a meta-analysis 
with meta being uh, not uh, Facebook meta, right. but uh, Greek word meta. So analysis of other studies by Pennycook and Rand, by Gordon Pennycook and David Rand, who study those issues on social media. Uh, and the survey of other work and their own work shows that reflection does help people to discern true and false and share uh, more truth and less false. And in that sense, uh, what uh, Vin was writing about six years ago, seven years ago, is actually something that's been confirmed by many studies uh, of scholars of social media. So I wish you uh, becoming uh, more informed and uh, discerning voters, as, uh, as uh, uh, the book uh, by Vin suggests, that's very important for the health of our democracies. So that's all for now. Thank you very much, Vin. Stay tuned for more conversations on our democracies and challenges to our democratic institutions. Science. Science.